Hello and welcome to another episode of Nearly Experts, the podcast which brings you closer to the life and work of PhD students from around the world. Today in studio, I'm joined by Luke Thompson. Hi, Luke. Hi. Now, Luke was born in the town of Lymington Spa, just outside of Birmingham, went to study his BSc Ons in Biological Sciences with a specialization in biochemistry at the University of Leicester and started here at the University of St. Andrews in October 2013. So welcome, Luke. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. Thanks for being here. All right, so biochemistry. Yes. I know that you've already handed in your thesis and you've actually recently have you had your viva. Yeah, it's a couple of days ago now. Still reeling from that, but... <laughs> well, fingers crossed. I hope that was the result that you that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. So you can actually give us the full title of your thesis or close to it. Maybe not the full title. It's way too long, but I study a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, which affects mainly kids. There's no real known cure. And... Uh, I was investigating potential novel interactions between proteins that might affect this disease. And I identified a couple between the survival motor neuron protein and an odd protein called neurochondrin. Okay, well, I'm sure my listeners at home have no idea what you're talking about, just like I do. Uh, so, I mean, why don't we break things up like we usually do uh, and, and get on into things? Spinal muscular atrophy. Yes. How common is this disease? It's a relatively common inherited disease. It's one of the more common childhood inherited diseases, I believe. And it's co- and it causes, usually early on in life as well, progressive dieback of nerves, causing paralysis, and then uh, later on, uh, well, not even later on in some cases, but early death. Uh, the most severe for uh, the average life expectancy is less than two years. Oh, wow. So this is, I mean... So I say it's not only common, but it's also very serious. Yeah, I, it's maybe common's not the right term, but it's common for an inherited disease. Okay, no, that makes sense. So you were working with particular aspects of this disease? Yeah, so the gene causing spinal muscular atrophy has been known since the mid-1990s, but there's still debate on the exact mechanism. And there's been a reasonable amount of research into several different aspects. Uh, i I'm looking at one particular one, which is trafficking, a trafficking defect. But there are other defects involving misplicing of RNA, which I won't go into. But the field is, rel- is relatively split of what could be the primary cause of it. And so it, we need to understand the basic mechanisms properly before we can focus on potentially a cure in the probably far future, unfortunately. Okay, so what you're saying is that we know the genetic marker of this disease. We don't know how it gets there? In most cases, we know it. There are also annoying, well, not annoying, but much less common varieties of spinal muscular atrophy that are caused by mutations in other genes. But the mutations in the survival of motor neuron protein are well known. In the majority of cases, it's just a straight-up deletion of the gene that produces the majority of this protein in, in humans. Okay, you've, you've used some uh, a few uh, technical terms there, so we'll, we'll wind that back a little okay, bit. Sure. By, by deletion, what, what do you mean? Just the, the gene that expresses this protein is just absent. It's removed from the DNA of the individual, or it's mutated, or p- part of it is, or there's just something that prevents... Usually a deletion is the whole gene is just not there within the chromosome of the of an individual okay and this occurs during gestation it can be a spontaneous mutation but some people carry 
because it's a genetically inherited disease. Some people carry this. It, they don't show any symptoms because it requires both. Because of, of course, you have a maternal and a paternal chromosome. We're a diploid organism. In spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, both copies are mutated or non-functional in some way. Okay, so it's like a recessive... Yeah, it's very much a recessive disease. Some of the mutations in other genes that can cause forms of SMA, those are dominant. But the majority of cases, it's a recessive disease. Okay, and you were looking at both trying to sort out what the actual mechanisms were and trying to treat it, or...? It seems to be a very complex disease, and there may be multiple facets of what causes the the exact mechanism. And it may be it's a conjunction of many, many, many. I found a novel interaction between it and a relatively uncharacterized protein that appears to also be key for neuronal survival. Okay, and by neuronal survival, it means after you've contracted the disease, how neurons can... Well, survive and no longer atrophy? Potentially. I've I just identified this interaction and I started to characterize it, but we don't we don't know for sure yet whether this protein might actually affect SMA. But it's a novel interaction. It's not. It wasn't something we were expecting. Okay, and you discovered this? I found it. Yeah, through through some mass spectrometry, which meant sifting through a mountain of data. Okay, that's interesting. So, how did you go about all of this testing? Well, in my research, I use a lot of tissue culture, which is effectively we use immortalized cell lines. In my case, I use a cell line derived from a neuroblastoma. What's a neuroblastoma? Cancer of the stem cells that eventually become mature neurons. So it's it's a useful uh, particular cell line because you can grow up lots of it. And so I I also created a lot of plasmids, which allow you to express different sequences different DNA sequences within these cells. And so I produced a load of plasmids that expressed various fluorescent protein tagged to see where they localized. And then also I could use that tag to to purify for interactors of these proteins to identify novel. Okay, so what's a plasmid? It's circular DNA that can be not self-replicating, but it's used, it's mainly a bacterial things so many bacteria have a lot of these and we've kind of in cell biology and biochemistry we've i guess hijacked these plasmids to be able to provide a way to express proteins that might not necessarily normally be expressed in normal human cells okay okay and so then you use these plasmids that you have constructed by how you how do you do that in my case i used a particular plasmid that expressed Usually it was either yellow or green fluorescent protein and sections of this particular plasmid that you can cut into and insert other sequences. So using PCR, it's a standard protocol in biology. What does PCR stand for? Polymerase chain reaction, I think. And so effectively it allows you to amplify a specific sequence of DNA between two points if you have the right primers. By amplifying, in my case, sequences already expressed in human cells and attached them to these fluorescent proteins and then transfecting or putting them back into the cells rather we can easily investigate the localization we can perform many experiments to look at interactions there's a lot that you can do okay so basically you're splicing particular protein strands or dna strands into these plasmids that are already 
fluorescent. Why does the fluorescence matter? Well, the fluorescence matters because the way that you... Splicing is not really the right term, that, but by splicing in these specific sequences, you can attach the fluorescent protein to it so that it's not two separate proteins. It's one protein that's got a tag on. And so under a fluorescent microscope, you can clearly see where these different proteins are actually going to in the cell, whether they go into the nucleus or around near the cell periphery or whether they're exported out of the cell. It's relatively clear to see that. Okay, and so and that's how you track how these proteins are interacting with the cells that you're um, testing? Yeah, yeah. And then because uh, there are multiple different fluorescent proteins, you can put into the cells, say, two different... Uh, these plasmids expressing two different proteins with two different fluorescent proteins attached to them. And you can monitor co-localization within specific structures if you do it right. Okay, and that's why you use multiple fluorescent colors, I, I assume. Yes, yes. So the, standard, so the standard ones I've used are green fluorescent protein or yellow fluorescent protein and then a red fluorescent protein called M-cherry. Okay, so... I kind of understand all of that now, kind of. I, I hope my, my listeners at home manage to follow along as well. So what does your average experiment look like then? A dish of cells, really, or after I've lysed them, just some kind of, I guess, goopy liquid. It depends on whether I'm looking for co-localization or if I'm looking for interaction. If it's co-localization, you just grow up these cells on glass cover slips which can be used and on a microscope. the cells of those um the neuroblastome yeah and you put in the dna it's in a process called transfection you need specific reagents for it and it's quite expensive but you put in these plasmids and then you would image them after fixing them or whilst they're, whilst they're still alive on a fluorescence microscope to observe the co-localization if you're just looking for interactions then you can pellet the cells into into a lysis buffer which bursts the cells releasing all the protein inside okay because they don't need to be alive no no they in fact the majority of my work was you using just these proteins for which you can run on a uh, western blot which effectively it separates the proteins by size you can later on probe for specific proteins with antibodies. Okay, and I imagine that, that looking for interactions is, is your first kind of go-to to, to look at what might happen, whereas the co-localization uh, is kind of the next step because you're now having to deal with living yeah. cells? Yeah, well, but usually I've imaged using cells that I've fixed. It's usually in paraformaldehyde, which fixes them kind of in situ but preserves the structures inside the cells. Paraformaldehyde is just kind of some mix of paraffin and formaldehyde? Uh, no, it's just a particular ice form of formaldehyde. It's effective, it's just a version of formaldehyde. Okay, which is used for storage of mm. um, biological preservation, yeah. um, samples yeah. and has been for 200 years. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. To get the ideas of what might be co-localizing or interacting, though, I used mass spectrometry, which involves the lysing large amounts of these cells, so millions of cells, and then performing something called an immunoprecipitation, which involves antibodies again. So into these lysates, you add beads that have got antibodies to a specific target attached already to them, in my case, and you incubate them with the lysates, and then you wash 
wash them afterwards, and then run these beads on a Western blot, you should be able to see a lot of the interactors of these proteins as well, depending on how stringent your conditions are. And you see them by running them under uh, a fluorescent microscope? In that case, it's already lysed, or these are lysed cells, so you run to visualise them, you would use a Western blot. But okay. So part of the process of Western blot is to transfer onto an, a membrane. If you don't do that and you just stain the gel using a total protein stain, you can then cut out chunks, which the mass spec facility here at St Andrews, they perform the mass spectrometry on there to identify proteins that were present. And how many of these experiments did you do during your, what, three and a half years? So in terms of the mass spec, I did... It was only three, actually, in the end that I did, but the analysis took longer than the preparation and the and the actual data collection. In terms of Western blots and the co-localization, certainly at least the Western blots were in the hundreds. And each one took a couple of days? Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, you could sometimes run two or three in conjunction with each other to save on time, but yeah, really, it does build up long incubation periods within each step of that at various different temperatures. Just to be uh, annoying. So you had to be present, you couldn't just leave it overnight? Certain stages you could leave overnight, usually at four degrees. Why four degrees? Because you're using biological samples. If sometimes, especially if you're leaving it for long periods, unless it's refrigerated, the samples start to degrade. Also, you have to block non-specific binding and you use milk for that. And so if it was... At room temperature, overnight would be just about okay, but for any longer periods, uh, say the weekend, it, the milk would go off and your blot would be ruined. So why do you use milk? What does the milk do? Unfortunately, antibodies aren't perfect and they can bind non-specifically just through random interactions. And the milk blocks non-specific binding. The proteins within milk bind to these non-specific binding areas. Sounds like it's something that someone tried once and was like, hey, this works. There are other blocking agents, but we tend to use milk. Uh, you can use bovine serum albumin, but milk's probably nicer to the cows. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, it's also probably cheaper and more far more common. Oh, yeah. Well, we use powdered milk. Well, we use powdered milk rather than fresh milk. So even powdered milk works. There's nothing about it being living and no, active. No. In fact, it often needs to be powdered milk because it's more purified than the uh, the fresh milk. Ah, that's weird. I didn't think we'd get here. With your experiments, you said that you found some promising results. Can, yes. you, can you share those with us? I found in amongst these screens a protein called neurochondrin. It wasn't strongly identified well, not strongly, that's the wrong term, because it wasn't a quantitative screen. It was present, but there weren't that many hits, as it were, for it. Uh, it was just one that seemed very interesting, because there's been relatively little identified about neurochondrin in the last 20 years or so since it was originally discovered. And so to further investigate, I produced a plasmid that expressed a green fluorescent protein tagged version of that, and through various different methods, I saw co-localization, interaction. It was possibly the least likely of all the ones that I looked at, but it was the only one that necessarily worked. And how far along in your process were you when you identified this? It was in, oh, it was in my second year, the summer of my second year here. So almost going towards my third year. Okay, and I imagine once you had discovered this, you did more intense testing with it? Yes, so we confirmed the interaction through other 
immunoprecipitations and co-localizations. And we actually found that, so my original mass spec screens hadn't actually been on the survival motor neuron protein. It had been on some related proteins called the SM proteins. What does SM stand for? Just Technically, it stands for SMIF, I believe, uh, okay. which doesn't help because these proteins were originally identified in a particular particular patient i guess with the surname of smith that accidentally produced antibodies to specific proteins within themselves and it's a version of lupus so i was actually investigating two of those proteins when i identified this but through some further investigations we found that actually it appeared that the interaction was stronger between this protein neurochondrin and the survival motor neuron protein we looked further into it but so there are various different methods that we can use to reduce expression of particular proteins within cells. And so I used, it's called siRNA, so it's small interfering RNAs that are synthetically produced and they attach to RNA within the cells that would be eventually be expressed as these proteins. And so we can reduce the expression of various proteins very specifically usually. And in the case of this, we reduced the expression of neurochondrin in these cells, and we found that it caused a reasonable mislocalization of the survival motor neuron protein that's actually characteristic of some of the mutant survival motor neuron proteins that can be observed in some spinal muscular atrophies. Okay, so in terms of what this means on a larger scale. It's a novel interaction. There needs to be further analysis to see whether this interaction could be key for survival in the pathogenesis of spinal muscular atrophy. But it's a potentially interesting reaction because it appears that this protein neurochondrin might influence localization of the survival motor neuron proteins. So maybe in the future, this is just a very big maybe, there is a chance that this could be used as a target for therapeutics to spinal muscular atrophy. When would this come into it? If it were to be used in helping... Uh, treat spinal atrophy who would it be would it be used in the children who suffer suffer from it or would it be used to try and prevent the replication of those of the problematic genes you'd need gene therapy to replace the genes to prevent the problematic which is a whole other matter and there can be a bit of controversy about that because that's effectively genome editing yeah there's it's a slippery slope once you start potentially with that with the ethical implications anyway but it could be used potentially to alleviate symptoms maybe as i say these are all massive potentials rather than necessarily being yes we're going to do this it's going to be great and it's going to work so there's so much that still needs to be investigated before you can even start looking at drugs that might be able to help yeah but i mean this as you've said this is quite early on in the process and you've discovered this interaction yeah which is quite cool do you get anything out of that we're currently redrafting a paper about it so hopefully at some point in the not too distant future i'll have a first author paper which is pretty awesome we do technically we do have a patent on this interaction as well whether or not it will be useful who knows but no that's quite cool that's quite cool and if it can help people i mean that's amazing that your phd uh, research could potentially be directly applicable to the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Hopefully, hopefully in the future, probably in the very far future, there's so much we still don't know about this disease and how, especially how some of the variants of the of spinal muscular atrophy that aren't caused by problems with the survival motion neuron protein. There are so many that we don't understand how those genes in particular can cause similar or the same symptoms. 
So, I mean, there's plenty of room for anyone listening at home who wants to come in and help Luke's team try and find some way of combating this awful disease that strikes young people. Yeah. As I say, much more research is needed. It may be that this interaction isn't the key interaction. It might be a contributing factor, but there's so much research that needs to still be done on this because of the, the debate of what exactly is causing it. And in recent years, other than these two defects that I mentioned about splicing and at trafficking, there have been this protein, this valve motor neuron protein, being implicated in all kinds of other processes within the cells, but they're much less well characterized. No, I mean, I imagine if it were easy, then someone would have already solved it. Yeah, although unlike a, a lot of other diseases, unfortunately, spinal muscular atrophy hasn't had the research funding into it of, say, later onset diseases like Alzheimer's. Ah, that's intriguing, but probably the subject for another day. Because it's about that time again where we're going to move on from what has actually been quite a weighty subject, but we're going to shift on to figure out how someone becomes a researcher in these kinds of diseases and how you can contribute in such a way. So biochemistry, Luke. Yes. Does that mean you can think of yourself as a biologist and a chemist, or do you think of yourself as one or the other? It's most definitely a member of biology. If you tell a biochemist that they're a chemist, then no. There are many branches of biochemistry and other other parts of biology that look on a molecular level. There's molecular biology, parts of genetics, which is separate again. In some ways, it depends on, I guess, how you define yourself. I mean, I'm also a cell biologist, so I might have done my undergrad in biochemistry, but I can't really describe myself. I'm a mixture of biochemistry, molecular biology, cell biology. But you're very much a biologist. Yes, very much so. Okay, so given that you're a biologist then, when did you become interested in biology? Do you, was there ever a point where you were like, I'm going to be a biologist? It almost happened overnight. It was during my A-levels. So I was originally... Uh, for our overseas audiences, okay. A-levels, uh, the exams, courses that you take during your last two years of high school. In, in yeah, in England. England only. Oh, it's not England in, only? Yeah, it's Scotland, I believe. It's the highest and an advanced highest instead. Yeah, it's the last two years of high school. And we, we call it sick form, but you can also do it at colleges and other things. But originally, I, I was given a list of choices of what I wanted to do. And originally, I wanted to do computing instead, um, alongside chemistry and physics, and also maths, actually, as well. The shape of the timetable meant I couldn't do that. And I begrudgingly did biology instead. And that's when I picked up the bug. Because at the GCSE level, which is kind of the lower the lower level before you go into A levels, a lot of the biology had been very much zoology and ecology that didn't really interest me at all. But since we started doing A level biology, it was looking at, at amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins and various other more molecular aspects of biology that we just hadn't been taught earlier on or not in sufficient detail and that's what got me interested all right so you're always interested in the small scale stuff well i found out that i was i was originally thinking more along the chemistry lines but the kind of molecular parts of biology seem much more interesting so it was a happy accident then yeah pretty much uh yeah i got bitten by the bug and so i decided to do biology at university the first year was a uh, the first year of my undergrad degree was kind of a whole year group doing in module exactly the same modules. And so I got to experience zoology, botany, 
genetics, biochemistry, microbiology, and various things like that. But and so later on, I specialised mainly in the biochemistry, with a side, I guess, a side of genetics as well to keep molecular, keep to molecular stuff. Yeah, I just got interested through various le- various lecturers. Some were better than others, but uh, I just got very interested in it was mainly splicing proteins whilst I was there, and that's what I did my final year research project on in undergrad. Okay, which, which okay. brought me to here. And you went to the University of, of Leicester. Is oh, yeah. there any any reason why you chose there? I looked around multiple universities, and it was the one that I felt most at home at. Quite honestly, it was a significant proportion of the campus was devoted to the biosciences. Whilst I was there, it was constantly rated in the top four in the UK for biosciences as well. And they just had a lot of active research in so many areas. Also, the actual university was just brilliant fun. Okay. Got to meet people from all walks of life. Okay, fair enough. And you obviously decided to do biosciences. When did you start specialising in biochem? So that was in my second year. Um, As you said, you had your first kind of very general year. Yeah, we weren't allowed to specialise in our first year, but in our second year, we were allowed to choose modules. And there were various prerequisites to do specific streams of biology, like biochemistry, but they still allowed a bit of choice. And so I did biochemistry with a couple of modules from genetics just to help round out some of the knowledge because there was some overlap. Yeah, no, it sounds like there would be. Is it a three-year degree then, or is it a four-year yeah, degree? Yeah, three-year degree in England. It's weird. In Scotland, it's a four-year degree for a BSc ONS, but in England and Wales, it's only three years. What makes it an ONS? ONS, I believe, refers to what class of degree you got. Yeah, yeah. And so I got a 2-1. Okay, uh, and, and that was enough to bump you up to an honours level. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with your, your final project, which, as you say, was... In well, the-, the coursework, I mean, the final year project, the dissertation that I wrote for that was worth, I think, a third of my final year grade. Uh, so it did contribute because it was by far, I think, by far the uh, highest grade that I got in any of the modules that of all that were assessed over the years. And what was your project in? I worked on splicing pro well not splicing proteins but there's a cellular process called mrna or pre-mrna splicing which is why i picked you up earlier when you were saying splicing stuff into plasmids i was using a cell-free method using i believe it's just kind of purified lysate to investigate how different chemicals might might uh, change splice site choice of a particular gene had great fun doing that. Got to use a lot of radioactivity as well. Uh, how did radioactivity help? So in in vitro splicing assays, which is what I was doing, you used labelled bases within these to identify how the RNA is being spliced. So you would use a, it's called, a, I believe it was a phosphoimager that would react to the uh, the radioactivity and then you could scan that in and see exactly where the bands were nowadays you might use fluorescence instead i mean similar similar kind of assays but using fluorescence probe but in a lot of cases a lot of the more old techniques used radioactivity instead to identify specific uh, bands and specific well, genes or okay transcripts okay. so this was instead of using the fluorescence yes and I didn't really discover that much, to be honest, of other than other than maybe that, that 
that I wasn't doing it properly at the end of it. But um, it's always good to know that you are doing it wrong at the end. Yeah, well, it's so someone else in the lab was doing something similar and was getting absolutely fine results, whereas I was getting a much lower, much lower yield of the uh, result. And then, so from from Lister, you you came straight up to St Andrews. Yeah, so. The proteins, well, the proteins I actually started working on were up here were splicing related. So it wasn't just a complete leap into two different areas. I got bitten by the bug, let's say, undergrad, and wanted to bring that forward. Although, obviously, I've moved away slightly from that. Yeah, uh, and how does how did that work? How did the process of applying to St Andrews work in science? Uh, a lot of people apply to specific projects. Is that what? Happened yeah. So usually in the sciences the supervisor will have already got the funding for a specific project and you'll then apply for that project with that supervisor. I mean, the first project that I applied for, actually, is with the same supervisor that I'm with now, but the first project, actually, I didn't get in. It was a different type of project where instead of the funding going to the best project, it was going to the best student. There was a pool of students, pool of money amongst various different departments at St Andrews involved at least tangibly, with the biosciences. But evidently I came across well enough, and so my supervisor offered me the opportunity to apply for a different PhD, which had assured funding, and I got that. Oh, nice. Nice. Did you look anywhere else other than St Andrews? Why did St Andrews appeal to you? Well, it was at least partially because in the year that I was applying for PhDs, St Andrews was the only place that had funding for anything splicing-related. Although I, I didn't actually visit here before I accepted. I just accepted and then moved up. Luckily, luckily for me, I enjoy, I've enjoyed myself immensely being here. It's a great town. So I guess that is the end of your story, at least thus far. Uh, which means I guess we have to now go to what happens at the stage of every podcast uh, and take a look at our five questions. Now, so these questions are generally for people who are still in the process of doing their PhDs. As we said earlier, Luke has already both handed in and had his viva, which yes. is hopefully you'll remember from Sarah's episode, is the oral examination that can take kind of anywhere between two and I don't know, 10 hours. Yours was about five, Luke? It was four hours, I think, in the end. Uh, although I think the last well, the last quarter of an hour, half an hour, was me effectively just waiting around outside for them to reach a verdict. That sounds stressful. Oh, it was. I was offered a Jaffa cake by someone who was in the office next door. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. All right. So, are you ready for these final five questions? No, but go on. All right. Question one, then. What has been the biggest challenge of your PhD experience? I suppose it was, at least in the early years, it was just getting to grips with not just what was expected, but getting to grips with a whole new town. It took me a while to bed in in St Andrews. And so that was probably one of the more difficult bits. Also, some of the techniques are very fiddly and you might repeat them three or four times and they might only work once. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. In fact, sorry, but... Biology is pretty much just the only science I can think of, apart from maybe some areas of neuroscience and maybe some areas of psychology, where what you're studying can literally just effectively say, no, I don't want to do that today. Or decide to die. Yeah, or decide to die, or decide to get contaminated by with bacteria or fungi or something really annoying that means you have to chuck out everything and start again. Sounds frustrating. All right, question number two. What piece of advice would you give yourself about PhD life if you could go back to your first day? My first day. Work harder in the first few months and uh, it will make things a lot easier 
later on, especially in the first few months, I, I had some problems getting into labs at the right time. So also wake up earlier would be probably the more apt one there. Well, it sounds like good <laughs> life advice generally. Wake up earlier. Yeah, only to a certain extent. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, question three. Ideal scenario, what do you want to get from your PhD? And most of the time, I just wanted to help further my particular area of science. A bit of recognition wouldn't hurt, but it was mainly to try and further the science. I, I enjoy the investigation aspect of it. I... All right, well, along those lines is question four. And what impact do you want your PhD thesis to have? I'd like it to be able to help, let's say, for further the uh, area if it's used in the future or if my research is used in the future for, to further investigate other proteins that might be involved or further investigate this interaction as a potential drug target that might be used for treating SMA, then that would be amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I think that's a great answer. I mean, unlike a lot of the other PhDs, not a shot at them, but some of us who do humanities, the research is not always uh, directly applicable, whereas I, I think uh, everyone will agree back at home that your research is clearly applicable. Could be anyway. Okay, question five, and my last question of today. If you had never studied biology, what would you be doing right now? Oh dear, I don't know. Um, I mean, I might have gone into chemistry instead. I would have certainly have gone to university, but I might not have necessarily chosen the right course. So who knows exactly? What do you think, based on how you know yourself? Oh, it was a while back, but I would probably have ended up going into either chemistry or physics. Probably chemistry, though. Mm, um, you think you'd still be, have done a PhD? I don't know. I, I don't know how the uh, how or whether I'd have enjoyed chemistry as much. No, that's, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And that's the end of our show. Uh, thank you very much, Luke, for coming in. You've been a wonderful guest. No problem. Congratulations. Thanks for having me. No, no worries at all. Congratulations on your uh, successful Viva two days ago. Thank you. At the time of recording. And that's it for another episode of Nearly Experts. Thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can always keep up to date with everything that's going on with us. If you just like us on Facebook, that's just at Nearly Experts. Or follow us on Twitter. And with that, I guess that's the end of our show. I hope you hear from me soon. I can't pronounce that word today. Thank you.